Hello, everybody. Uh, today is Jesus. <laughs> Wednesday, December 17th, 2014. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat, episode 117. Today on the docket, obviously, what else is there to talk about? Um, CM Punk. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the UFC being sued by three former fighters, John Fitch, Nate Quarry, and Kung Lee in a class action lawsuit. Um, we'll talk about that as much as we can in an informed way. I am not an attorney, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but there are still things we can discuss and try to keep ourselves abreast of. Uh, obviously, though, there's still fight news. There's a UFC event this weekend. Not getting a lot of buzz now with this, but uh, it's in Brazil. CB Dalloway taking on Leota Machida, and, of course, Henan Burrell returning to action in the co-main event against Mitch Canyon. Um, we can talk about all of that, plus results from over the weekend. UFC and Fox 13. Ultimate Fighter 20 finale, whatever you want to talk about, Joe Rogan giving Brendan Schaub the business. Whatever's on your mind, best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. You may also uh, tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas. Please use the hashtag chat rappers. You guys know how it works in the comments. If it gets green, it gets priority. Um, and, of course, if you have any final questions, I have my phone with me, my new Samsung Galaxy S4. It's an amazing phone, really. Uh, excuse me, Galaxy Note 4. Um I will check my email, and you can email me at luke.thomas.sbnation.com. All right. With that out of the way, so let's get to it, shall we? So first question, I think it's—I think I checked before that it's about the lawsuit. But let me just make sure here. Okay, question number one. Obviously, one of the biggest stories is the lawsuit against the UFC. Other than your general, oh, by the way, I don't have any, uh, <laughs> I don't have any soda today. I am so tired, it is scary. I've got actual coffee. Shout outs to the Mud House, which is an independent coffee shop nearby. That's how we do it over here. All right. Obviously, one of the biggest stories is the lawsuit against the UFC. Other than your general thoughts, how do you see this playing out? Will other current UFC fighters stand up? So I'll conjecture at this point, but I'd like to hear a thoughtful point of view. Well, I'll give you one if I can to the points that you're asking. I'm gonna try and keep this, there's a lot of moving parts to this, this situation. So um, how do I see this playing out? Well, it is obviously far too early to tell. There's simply just no way. Um, in addition to Todd Martin, who is an attorney and also an MMA writer, he had some skepticism about the overall viability of the case. Um, I talked to some other lawyers that I know, a bunch of good friends of mine are attorneys who also watch MMA. And they generally share that sentiment with the caveat that it's just too early to know. Also with the caveat that if the judge does not throw out uh, and dismiss the case, I'm sure the UFC will and Zufa will have a motion to dismiss. If that doesn't work and so they go forward with it and a judge orders uh, a discovery, or I should say the judge makes a discovery process takes, pla takes place, um, then, then that can get really interesting. Um, there could be a settlement and the settlement could go any number of different ways. Um, there's not just sort of one universal settlement. Um, it could go all the way to a jury trial, and they could ultimately win, and that would, I think, you know, be the undoing of the UFC as we know it. But I, I just don't think it. I personally, from again, I'm not an attorney in any capacity whatsoever. My reading of this is only as much as I can consume from the outside looking in. And I'm going to share two articles. I think you need to read to really get this going. Three, maybe. But from the outside looking in, if you consult expert opinion from the outside. Um, they view the overall case as fairly weak, not hugely weak, fairly weak. 
Um, and the reason why is because they, the, the, the plaintiffs in this case are making um, two basic claims, well, more than that, but basically two basic claims, that there is a, um, that there has been an unfair illegal monopoly in terms of um, the service end of things, the mixed martial arts bouts themselves, and there's been a monopsony on fighter talent, meaning that there only is one buyer, in this case, the UFC, of all the different um, um, fighters that are of the elite level. That's the argument. And there's a couple of, well, that's the claim anyway. Um, and they use a, a variety of different arguments, if you read the 60-plus page complaint, to buttress these claims. I think some of those claims have some legs from what I'm told and talking to other attorneys and sort of a general reading about what makes sense and what doesn't. Some of them are, I think, uh, are pretty poor. Again, though, you don't know that in the discovery process, they might not, they might discover something, for lack of a better description, that enhances these arguments before they move to any further place. Um, UFC might be more than willing to settle only on the terms that they simply don't want that discovery process to get to take place. Like, in other words, if the suit is doesn't get thrown out, they're like, you know, we just don't want these record books open, which is their right because they're a private company. They don't have to open them for anybody unless um, it gets to that point where they're legally required to do so. But up until that point, they don't have to, uh, and they may not. They may choose uh, um, to not want to do that. Uh, and any number of different ways this could go. Um, Two articles that we want to highlight here that I think are really important reading. Three, really, or maybe even more than that. There's a lot of good different summations. Gross, uh, Josh Gross had a great summation of yesterday and all the different moving pieces that went into to bringing this lawsuit to bear. Uh, that's an important one to read. But um, uh, Dave Meltzer had a great one for us on MMA Fighting, another important one to read. These all really give a, a helpful context. There's two, though, that I really want to pinpoint that can really be of benefit to you about what they're asking and what it all means. The first one. It's an article um, in Sports Illustrated. I tweeted it yesterday. Uh, it is called, I'm pulling it up here. It is called Antitrust Lawsuit, If Successful, Could Unravel the UFC. And it's by Michael McCann, who is, a, uh, I believe, an attorney who covers sort of sports. I don't know, I should say an attorney who focuses on sports-related laws. So I mean, let me, let me see how he reads this. That's too open-ended to really make sense because there's all different matter of here's how he reads bio reads uh is a massachusetts attorney and the founding director of the sports and entertainment law institute at the university of new hampshire school blah, blah 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 okay so that's one you want to read because he gives a basic outline about what they're claiming two basic claims here one that they have that the ufc they allege the ufc has made things um in an illegal way anti-competitive in terms of um uh, the broader marketplace organizations to be able to come and compete and then also that they have suppressed wages and the ability of fighters to leverage themselves and make more money um, through onerous contracts uh, that's basically their claim as i understand it and if that's wrong by all means please correct me but that's the first article you want to read the second one which is even more helpful so i would read the sports illustrated one first the second one comes from bloody elbow by paul gift who is an expert in these matters uh, including antitrust. It's called Dissecting the UFC Fighter Antitrust Lawsuit Part 1. That is absolutely essential reading, helping you understand what's being claimed, what's possible, what's not possible, and what to expect, if for no other reason, uh, just in terms of the procedure of the law, like how this could proceed given various um, circumstances that take place. So these are the ones you want to read. Will other fighters join it? Um, I suspect many will. Uh, how many will be on the active roster? I don't know. Obviously, it seems much more likely that other fighters 
who have um, long since left the UFC are much more, you know, likely candidates. But there's so much to this story, it's hard for me even to know how to answer your question about it all. Um, I tend to think what's going to happen, if you're asking just a personal view about, again, completely uninformed as it relates to being a legal expert, again, just from what I've read and what I've been consulted by from other attorneys, it, the general sense that I get is that a settlement seems the most likely and that the matters where the plaintiffs have the strongest case are on the onerous contracts. Not so much the onerous contracts on fighters as it relates to the competitive marketplace, but onerous contracts as it relates to a fighter to maximize their value. Right. So, so that to me, like, for example, signing away your likeness rights for no compensation in perpetuity, which includes leaving the organization or death. Um, this inhibits the ability of a fighter to maximize their own wealth um, in a way that is an, uh, anti-competitive and onerous and, and, and as they allege, illegal. Um, whether that will stand, we don't know. Whether UFC will settle, we don't know. But if you're asking me what's really the strongest case, because another thing that they bring up in the, in the complaint is that, well, the UFC has managed to lock up a lot of venues that are only that would be good for other mixed martial arts businesses, but they have this sort of exclusionary rule going on, informal or formal, to only do business with the UFC and not let other rival promoters use those uh, venues. And then I think Todd Martin brought up an excellent point, being like, well, has that really stopped promoters from being able to find venues and stage shows and have a measure of success? Not, not really. I mean, maybe to some capacity, but this is not necessarily the um, you know, this major tipping point about, about things. Um, from my reading, you know, Paul Gift makes a point that says monopolies in and of themselves are not necessarily illegal, anti-competitive, um, you know, uh, past a certain tipping point, anti-competitive behavior can be, but you have to establish that and that can be difficult to prove. Um, I did some other readings by sports economists that said, you know, you have to understand what's happening here where there's a difference between a monopoly and an organization that has strong network effects where as more people join it and more people are watching it, it just develops into a thing where all the people in that space want to work there and all the sort of the spectators in the space want to watch it. And it, they're not necessarily committing any crime, but they just sort of overflow into the space where they naturally beat out all their competitors. I think that's really a really fairly accurate description of the space here. Like IFL was on its way out. Pride was on its way out. Strikeforce, I think that case is a little bit less clear, believe it or not, but um, certainly, um, you know, Affliction and all these other, Elite XC, these were brands that were burning through cash because I think of the natural network effects that you have. Another thing that Paul Gift mentioned that you want to sort of keep in mind about here is what is the marketplace they're talking about? UFC is probably going to want to argue, well, the marketplace is, look, we're competing against the NFL for young men. We're competing against the NBA for young men's terms of viewing. We're competing against movies over the weekend. We're competing against... Um, all kinds of different entertainment options. They want to really expand the marketplace because as the marketplace becomes bigger, the argument that they have this adverse and anti-competitive effect on it is going to be very hard to make. By contrast, if the, as the plaintiffs want to do, if they want to shrink it, and geographically they've shrunk it to U.S. and Canada or North America, and then there's other ways they want to shrink it, not combat sports generally, but maybe just MMA, the, 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 the narrower the market, the easier it is for the plaintiffs to make their argument. Um, a lot of moving parts here. For me, the strongest arguments that the plaintiffs have, from, again, from what I've read and what I've been told, is about some of the natures of those, some of the nature of the contracts. Um, less so about the competitive space generally, and so that seems to me, from what I've been told, 
a settlement seems more likely. But to me, the most interesting thing that folks need to keep in mind is winning outright a jury trial for the plaintiffs here would be a monumental victory, however unlikely. It would be a monumental victory. But we have to really sort of keep in mind what success actually means. And there's a really important discussion. People are saying that the reserve clause that affected Kurt Flood in the 70s, the baseball player, who basically is the, I don't know, originator, grandfather, creator, inadvertently or uh, directly of um, free agency. But the reserve clause has a lot of parallel to um, the exclusivity rights that, you know, for example, everyone says, oh, Gilbert Melendez, he was a free agent. No, he was not a free agent. Gilbert Melendez had the right to go and shop an offer, which the UFC had all the rights to match. That is not the same as going out there and you're completely free and everyone's bidding for your services. If Bellator, has, Bellator had to turn in a final offer, which is the UFC met, UFC kept them. That's, that's very much a restricted form of free agency. That's not true free agency. And so there's that point. There's also the champion's clause. And there's a debate about whether it's three years or perpetuity. You know, that's sort of legalese that we don't need to get into. Um, but there's a question about what is the parallel between that and then Kurt Flood trying to overcome the reserve clause, which basically said you know, the team could trade you and sell you even after the terms of your contract were expired. You couldn't just leave. Um, and he fought it. He lost that case. Kurt Flood lost that case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, I believe, and he lost. Eventually, they created a 10-5 rule where if you were in the league 10 years and five with the team, you had some additional rights. And then later on down the line, uh, it was two other gentlemen who helped create what was basically real free agency. Kurt Flood lost that case. But the point you need to understand here is, one, if they even get to discovery, that is a dramatic, dramatic thing. If they so much as force Zufa to open up their books and you take a look at what they're really making and what they're really paying, maybe it comes out that they're overpaying guys, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it comes out that they've been dramatically underpaying. I'm just sort of pointing out to you, it finally gives you an answer as to whether guys are getting paid relative to what other professional athletes are being paid in other leagues, or whether it matches what UFC has previously said publicly about what they've been paid. Those things can be verified at that point. Gives it gives fighters a dramatic upper hand, or at least a uh, improved position of negotiation. Um, also, I don't know that this is the first or the last of things. Um, if they're able to make incremental progress here, you know, certainly the UFC won't be sued for the exact same thing going down the line. But people sort of assume that this is the last bit of litigation UFC might face. I don't really view it that way, um, especially if they settle. This, th these are incremental steps towards something more substantive. Um, viewing this as the be-all, end-all, final determinator of what will happen between labor relations between the UFC and, and fighters, to me, seems deeply misplaced. This is very much the beginning, uh, in some respects, depending on how substantive the change is, anyway. Um, so I, I haven't really given you a concrete answer in many ways because it's just so fluid. The other thing I would just sort of say to round out this answer, and we'll keep talking about it as questions arise for the rest of this chat, is we are, we are barely peeling back the layers of the onion here. My recommendation to you, and it's one I'm gonna uphold, is that we have to constantly keep reading about this. And at some point, there'll be a you know, dead end of information. And at some point, it'll sprout back up again. This is going to be a long process. But trying to have a hot take right away is not very easy. It's not very prudent. It's not really possible. We're just establishing the foundation of understanding about what they're claiming, about what the space looks like, and about how we go forward. Um, 
couple of last notes I'd say about this. Some of the attorneys I spoke to said that there were some attorneys for the plaintiffs that were hard hitters. Uh, Eric Kramer was highlighted as one that seemed very legit. I think Princeton undergrad, Harvard, um, get his uh, a JD at Harvard and has sort of known in the space of antitrust as being an expert, has authored several papers on it that have been cited in federal court cases. He was cited as a, as a big deal, but some of these law firms have only been around since 2012. And that this idea that all of them are, you know, heavy hitters needs to be dialed back a little bit. Moreover, in many of those cases, some of those law firms got settlements that didn't win jury trials or trials outright or uh, judgments against the defendants. Um, so that needs to be keep, keep in mind as well. People ask, why would the attorneys do it? Well, the attorneys would do it because, as Paul Gift points out in his article, this is an issue of economics. All sort of antitrust issues are a function of economics, really. And so what these firms have done is with their own independent economic experts or ones they've hired, third party, they've assessed the situation, they've decided whether they can pursue the law up to, or they can pursue this case up to a point to obtain a reasonable settlement or a judgment, and, and, and whether or not there is enough legal substance there for them to climb on to do that. Um, does the math work? Are these fighters' claims true? If they're true, how true are they? How much money are we talking about? Okay, now let's look at the case. How verifiable is it? How workable is this case? How far can I push this? Uh, and so when those two meet at a certain point, there's enough there, they'll try. That in no way means they'll win. That in no way means they'll win. Um, just something to keep in mind. The only thing I would say about this, though, is if you think that the only way the plaintiffs win is by a jury trial where they all 12 vote in favor of the, the plaintiffs, that would be, I mean, that would be like hitting five grand slams in a game or something. I think the fighters are just looking to get a base hit. I think that's what they're looking to get. And if you think of it in that way, about what you're trying to get, um, which is why I say this is just the incremental process of, I think, of further litigation to come, unless they settle in some ways and close off those avenues. That's the way to look at this, especially if they get to discovery. If they can get to the discovery phase and people can be deposed and financial documents can be poured over, you got a whole new ballgame going on there. But that's just my very, very brief macro view of this. Um, you know, people ask me, am I sympathetic to the case? Um, it's not my case. I'm not suing them. It's hard for me to put myself in that position. If you're asking me about the letter of the law and what I think will happen, you are better served asking other people, Todd Martin and various other attorneys who have some expertise in this space. That's very different than, um, you know, do I think that fighters currently are in a position to maximize their, their value? Uh, you know, absent what the law says, I personally don't believe they are. I've made that very clear over the last couple of years. Um, a lot of reasons for that, but I don't believe that fighters are in a position to maximize their wealth. How you get to a position where they are, that's a debate you can have. Um, but I think until that dynamic has changed, I just, you know, do you really believe that fighters are getting paid not as much as they could be, but as much as they could be where they are on a more even keeled negotiating um, point? If they had the information about what payouts were and what the, and what the and what the and what the um, you know the, the defined revenue split was between themselves and the league. You know, would would the negotiation change? Um, I think it would. I think it would. Anyway, people are asking what they want. Um, they're trying in terms of what Paul Gift says in his article. 
because you can explain it much better than I can. They're trying to assess liability and then claim damages. And then beyond that, it's not clear at this point. But um, this is something you have to pay attention to, not just now, but for a long time, to really understand the breadth of this case, what they're arguing and what's at stake and how far it goes. All right. I hope that is a, a moderately decent overview. Um, we'll see. All right, love for the sport. Look, I remember a few weeks back, someone asked if you were a fan of the UFC, and you responded by saying you were a fan of MMA, not organizations themselves. I was wondering if you still love MMA now, the same way you did when you first got into the sport. Uh, no, I do not. If not, what do you think of the re what do you think of the reason is that? Um, because I think my interests have expanded. I don't dislike MMA. I actually like it very, very much. But uh, I've much more. I don't. By occupation, I'm an MMA. You know, I don't know. Talking head, semi journalist, whatever you want to call me. I don't really care. Uh, but in my brain, I much more view myself as a combat sports journalist, or you know, even beyond that to a very minor extent. Um, So yeah, I'll just leave it that. Ring rust equals myth. Do you think the term ring rust, and just by the way, if you're wondering about this lawsuit thing, there's plenty more questions to come. Um, do you think the term ring rust is just a myth, something made up from fighters and promoters, a la Dana White, to excuse them from poor performance? No, I, I don't, but the problem is I don't think ring rust affects people equally. Some people benefit from time off. Some people really get uh, hobbled by it. A lot of guys are rhythm fighters. A lot of guys are schedule fighters. A lot of guys like activity generally. Some guys, like that, but maybe need time off to, in the case of Dos Santos after the last Velasquez fight, to recover and sort of get their legs back in, on, from under them. Whatever you think of his performance against Stipe Miocic, imagine what it would have been with three months rest versus sort of a year or more. That's what you really want to keep in mind. By the way, one note I did not mention. Um, this is just conjecture. I have no idea. But, you know, there was a lot of concern over whether why Dana White had stopped doing the scrums back to the lawsuit. And he had said that he had, he had taken issue with how some of the media had portrayed him uh, in various uh, articles he had written related to those scrums. Now, whether that's true or not, I mean, you know, um, or it both could be true at the same time, really, to be perfectly honest. But to me, I, I, I don't see how this lawsuit is not related. Uh, those statements that he gives in those scrums are very much, um, you know, off the cuff. They're very much candid. Uh, as far as we can tell, and um, that kind of formula, even if you agree with him, can be a recipe for manipulation for the plaintiff, or, or use for the plaintiff, depending on your perspective. Moreover, again, I just never really understood why he stopped doing them. You had this dramatic impact on how the MMA narrative took place after each event. You, I mean, one man was almost single-handedly defining the terms of the conversation, the context in which it took place. And to just to remove himself from that and to give away, give away that space so everyone else can occupy it, I, I didn't quite understand if the only beef was that he didn't like how some people had written his art, articles about him. Um, again, that may well very be true, but I just can't help but wonder if uh, the attorneys for Zufa, because I'm sure they had heard this was coming, had sort of consulted with him that you know maybe keeping this um, practice at a minimum or gone altogether for the time being is probably the prudent way to go. To me, I don't see how those two are not related. Why did no member of the media ask about the lawsuit on Saturday? Asked the guys who were there. 
uh, let's see, contracts. How is it fair that the UFC or any other company can cut a fighter on a loss when the fighter has a multi-fight contract? On the other hand, the fighter cannot cut himself loose from the contract or even go somewhere else when he's retired, hence Vandalay Silva's situation with Bellator. Um, let me just say something. That's a question. I'm, I'm going to answer questions up here the best that I can, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm some contract law expert. Let me just raise another issue with contracts that folks need to understand. People, I often hear fighters, or I should say fans, saying, and by the way, I was bashing fans on Twitter yesterday, MMA fans. Bashing MMA fans, unfortunately, is something I do a little bit too much of. There's a lot of great MMA fans, but I'm just being honest with you here. A lot of them drive me crazy. Uh, and a lot of them have a really pro-management, anti-fighter uh, an anti sentiment, which I think is just hard to understand, but uh, as a fan anyway. Um, but I want to defend them a little bit because I distinctly recall during the last NFL lockout, there were talk radio was full of people. And you guys remember the old guy from the, uh, remember the Chuck Liddell Q&A before the uh, Baltimore UFC event? I can't remember which one that was anymore. 173, John Jones versus Glover. Hey, Chuck, all these guys out here whining and crying. I'd love to make 60K in and that. Um, you saw a lot of that uh, hostility towards players, a different level of it. Why are all these millionaires crying about their millions? I'd love to have millions. Turns out that no matter how much money you make as a pro athlete, that's enough for the average donk to think it's too much. But um, it is not true that MMA fans are exclusive, uh, exclusive in their hostility to their own sports pro athletes in terms of labor dispute. I think that it actually is fairly universal across sports. And I definitely recall a lot of antipathy for the lockout the last time it was around. Um, that's one point you want to make. Second point about contracts. People keep asking, these guys are signing contracts. If you don't like the contract, don't sign it. That's not how life works, right? There are laws. You cannot sign away your right to, I mean, that's what inalienable rights mean, right? I can't sign a contract that's in four. I mean, I can't. You can offer me a contract that says, Luke, you have to give away your home and your dog and uh, all your property. Okay, well, that's we can do that. And uh, you have to be a slave. You have to sign away your right to personhood. Um, if that was challenged in court, it wouldn't be upheld, right? Um, you can't sign laws against things that are federally or in any kind of other way protected by law. Um, so far, I saw someone else in the bloody elbow comments bring up a great point. They said, listen, if I sign a lease that says no pets, but I'm blind, I'm allowed to have a seeing eye dog because I'm federally protected by this law. So you can put stuff in contract and I can sign it. That does not make it ironclad law. What makes it ironclad law is what the law actually says. Signing the contract means nothing if it doesn't match what the law says. And so the question that the plaintiffs have is, are these contracts we've signed, we've given away our rights in perpetuity, including in death and leaving the organization, does that really match what the law allows for? And that's what this lawsuit, in part, is trying to discover, is trying to get an answer on. And they may get an answer by settlement, or they may get an answer by from some other way. Or they may not get an answer. The answer may be, go F yourself, plaintiffs, the case has been thrown out. That, to me, is the really only way they lose, if the whole case gets thrown out ahead of time. If they, if they get that, that would be a fairly stunning defeat. Um, let's see. Who's the best grappler in MMA right now? I don't know who the best grappler in MMA right now is. You can make a bunch of different arguments about it. Maybe Jacques Ray, maybe somebody else. I'm just going to pinpoint Habib Nurmagomedov for a point that folks need to understand. It is almost impossible to see a guy who has 
this con these kinds of takedowns, doubles, singles, arm throws, hip throws, two-on-one trips, uh, 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 a wide arsenal of takedowns from different styles of takedown arts. And then on top of that, back takes, passing, control, um, submissions. Now, his finishing rate isn't as high as we'd like it to be, I, I admit. But his game, to me, in terms of all the different styles of grappling and all the different phases of grappling, he might be the most complete in the sport today. Um, let's see. Luke, who do you think has the best guard for MMA? Um, maybe not best credentials, but just works out the best. Uh, let's see, best guard. Got to be Charles Oliveira or... Um, I don't know. Charles Oliveira, uh, just Capenny has a really good guard. Carlos Condit has a very underrated guard. I want to call it the best, but pretty underrated. Demian Maia has a good guard. You just don't see him much anymore. Those guys. Uh, JDS, after the Kane loss, Luke, was it me or did Junior Dos Santos look like he had lost a step physically Saturday night? It really did seem like the Kane fights took a toll on him from both the aesthetic aesthetic view, I'm not sure what you mean, I think you mean aesthetic view, and athletic one. Um, yeah, the question going into that fight was what? How much did those two fights, the last two Kane fights, take from him? He left a piece of himself in there each time. How much? The answer is a lot. The answer is a lot. I had somebody cruelly responding to me about my single noise column saying, um, you know, this is just babying melodrama. This is not melodrama. Um, we have a problem on our hands. And anybody who tells you it's anything less than that is delusional. We have a real problem on our hands because while you can argue it's fine that he keeps competing, the space in which he needs to compete and the number of fighters, the list of fighters, I should say, available to him in that regard, put his health in substantial jeopardy. <clears throat> It just does. He is getting his face hammered into different positions from fighting. I mean, this should be hitting alarm bells in your head, right? These are, I mean, we're talking about a number of red flags here that we can see coming. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I think the best case is actually a fight with uh, Overing because I think you can make it the fight because it's, it's, it's uh, sellable roughly equivalent in terms of ability. It'd be intriguing for fans. And that, the thing I worry about is you're not giving him somebody he can beat, quote unquote. I mean, I think I think DeSantis would beat Overeem. And people say, this is not how you match make. Bull ass, this is not how you match make. You give him a guy that in this particular case can't go the distance like the other guys, especially if it's in a five-round main event. Right? Overeem is really potent early and then tends to fade over the course of the fight, even when he wins. That's what I would... I would give him first because a if he can't beat that guy then we can stop with this whole process altogether but uh if, if he wins you at least minimize the risk of taking one of these prolonged hammerings that he's been taking diaz in the ufc we often blame the fighters for not raising their voice when they are still active fighters in the ufc they can't win if you raise your voice while you're in the ufc or any organization really but if you raise your voice while they're in it, oh, you're a crybaby, don't you make enough money? Stop all that whining and crying, right? Because you're a uh, rich athlete. Certainly your life is perfect. You've been given everything that you need. You've never had to work for it. You don't have specialized skills. 
um, you're just lucky to make more money than that guy who um, is living in a van down by the river because he didn't do his homework senior year of high school. That's the, that's the only thing that separates you, serendipity. Um, so if you complain while you're there, they don't respect you. And if you complain after the fact, they say, well, why don't you complain while you were there? Well, I didn't complain when I, was, when I was there because there was no incentive to, if not for labor relations, then all the other arguments I'm talking about. And I'm complaining now because I have the opportunity to. This is not hard to understand. Um, the media and fans blame several fighters like Fitch, Cholish, Vanderlei, etc. When an active fighter like Diaz talks about the real problems in the UFC business, an interview with Ariel, Ariel talked to him about being so negative. When is it fair to criticize the UFC? I don't like the Diaz brothers, but I do think they have a point. Um, it's fair to criticize them whenever, well, I mean, I don't know how to answer that. If you feel like you have a criticism, say it. If you feel like you don't, don't. Uh, I can't answer for fighters when there's an appropriate time, but I can say that they really have no, they, in terms of the, how it's received publicly, if they bitch about it, they are accused of, you know, being a malcontent, whether or not there's any merit to the argument whatsoever. Um, if they don't, and then they say it after the fact, they get told they're a coward who abused the system and could have done something better while they were there. They, they cannot win. So I understand why they do one or either. Uh, I, I, Nate Diaz, though, I don't know if this is even a coordinated campaign. I think Nate Diaz is filled with frustrated rage about the last contract he signed um, and doesn't know what to do about it. He has lost momentum. He has lost enthusiasm. He uh, just can barely go through the motions at this point. Um, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what the OC intends to do about it. But that's sort of my read is that whether or not you agree with him is a separate matter. But he believes that he's been wronged and that he's stuck and that he's frustrated and is so bothered by it, he can't bring himself to perform at a level that would be a benefit to him. So folks are like, well, why isn't he going through these, doing these interviews? Why is he trying to make weight or you know, pull out if you can't fight, you know, do the things you're supposed to do? Because if you're so filled with anger and you're so filled with rage, clarity escapes you. I admit it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're whining about money to then miss an interview and then get docked 10 grand. That doesn't, that doesn't compute, it, except it does compute if you really sort of take a step back and say, okay, how angry and upset do you have to be to just say, I F it, I just don't care. I just don't care. Probably pretty upset. I'm not saying you have to agree with Nate Diaz. I'm just trying to understand his mindset. That to me is the case. Because if he's complaining about money and saying, well, here, you just gave away $10,000. What are you doing? Just go sit there and say, blah, 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 and then leave. Why would you? He would do it on the circumstance that he was probably very, very upset to the point where he's not thinking clearly about that particular thing. Uh, great Fox card last Saturday. I agree. Did the UFC screw up the original one? In retrospect, the UFC majorly screwed up the original UFC and Fox card by having one fight, or did they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this. One, they had the Benson Henderson-Clay Guida fight as the co-main event, which was the better fight by a million miles and didn't air it. Those two guys, the whole thing was resting on them. They buried Cain Velasquez after the fight was over. Um, listen, they were trying to work themselves out, but I don't really think that focusing on what they did for the first one really matters. The ratings were great, and there's a lot of positive things to take from it. But I think the real positive thing here is that I think the UFC – they mentioned this in the Sports Business Journal article, including Lorenzo Petita, that they were really trying, when they, when they first went to Fox, 
they were kind of just building shows. And now what they're trying to do is build tiers. Yeah, so your pay-per-view's the top. Fox may be a tick under that, although it has its own, you know, you can get Fox Sports 1 shows that might be better or more interesting, but there's a certain way you have to build a show for Fox. Um, and then so your fight nights. Now, they're all fight nights now. There's no more Fox versus fight night. But, you know, for the platform, they're trying to – Fight Pass has to have a certain kind of feel. Fox Sports 1 show, Fox, and then – and I still think they get that wrong a lot. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they've mastered it. But I will say, I give them credit. They've done a really, really good job of improving the Fox shows. Um, they finally got good guys to open up the show. Relevant bouts, holding that main card position. Top contenders competing in the main event, but in a way that folks care about. If, if you notice, they've gone to the well in the last three times. They've gone to the well, the heavyweight well, twice. Um and I think that's paid off. They did they did okay ratings for the Travis Brown versus Fabricio Verdum one, but it was at least a really good event. They went to Orlando. They went to a new city. It was exciting vibe there. They went to Phoenix. They went to a new city. An exciting vibe there. They put on two heavyweights. You put on, I you know, I often talk about this. The difference between elite MMA and non-elite MMA is like dramatic, and the drop off is quick. You're either you're either those guys or you're not those guys. Um, but at heavyweight, it you really see it at heavyweight, man. Heavyweight. Elite fighters do elite things in deep waters that other heavyweights cannot even remotely bring themselves to doing. And I think it's a smart play to have heavyweights on TV, elite heavyweights on TV. They just do things that are truly mind-blowing, and, and the proof has been in the pudding. The Brown, you know, Brown didn't give Verdum the same kind of fight that Stipe gave JDS, but you know, no one looks back on these as unfavorable experiences. Jimmy Varner, do you think that Jimmy Varner can be successful with his plans of starting a fighters union? I will withhold comment until there's anything more to talk about there, but I uh, I don't know. I don't know. Someone's asking, so this is just a thought about the Reebok deal. Could it possibly work if gyms were treated like teams or clubs and they could get their own sponsorships with the Reebok uniforms? How about this? How about the fighters negotiate? Everyone's trying to like, what if I take this square peg and I twist it this way to put it in the round hole? How about this? How about we get the UFC and the fighters to negotiate on even terms? How about that? That's what's missing. I mean, guys, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the UFC's arguments, and we'll see what they might be, but to their arguments that they haven't been anti-competitive, they've just been very successful in the marketplace. Now, I'm not saying they haven't been aggressive and and um, uh, bullies at times about certain things, but you know, the question about here is, from a legal standpoint, what laws and the way in which we define how those laws are upheld or broken, have they broken any laws? I, I have a hard time seeing how they've broken any laws in that particular um, space of the argument about being so the uh, anti-competitive in the marketplace. I think they've been very, very, very successful. I think it's very true that they, the people they've bought out have been on their way out. They simply helped them, you know, kick them to the door and, uh, and, and kept their library along the way. Um, so there's a strong argument to make that the current landscape, as we understand it, you know, and, and Bellator's back on Viacom, the current landscape, as we understand it, is probably okay. The missing ingredient, though, is somebody collectively bargaining for the fighters. If you have that, and you have the rest of the, you know, and some contractual adjustments, and you have that, a lot of the problems go away. A lot of the problems go away, in my personal view. It's not that we want to tear down what the UFC has built. What they have built is, in many ways, um, it'd be a shame to lose. I mean, and not in many ways. In profound ways, it'd be a shame to lose. 
they built something really great. The only sort of missing ingredient is whether or not the fighters are partners in this and then equal participants at the table. Um, and that's what this suit hopes to find some more definitive answers to. So this idea about what if we did with, with the teams and what if we did this one, forget all that, forget all that. Let's do it the way we know it, it, it's done by collectively bargaining. That's, that's how this situation plays out. Let's have mutual benefit. Let's have shared revenue to a position that both sides are comfortable with. And then let's proceed and forget about all this. That's, I think that's what the outcome that everybody wants, right? You get paid, you get paid. Are you happy? Are you happy? Okay, let's go. That's, that's what everybody wants, I think. Sparring without headgear, in contrast to many boxing gyms, a lot of MMA gyms around the country in Denmark spar without any headgear. In my gym, even beginners spar without headgear. I want to start a Muay Thai, but I worry about that. What are your thoughts and advice? Um, so there are two different schools of thought. One is that the headgear, depending on how you use it, is uh, a benefit to you. If you use it for a lighter version of sparring, you can protect yourself from a lot of facial damage, um, depending on the kind of headgear that you use, as well as getting your head rocked. There's a belief, though, that that is a, something you can't maintain over the long run because this headgear weighs on you, it, it has weight. And so if you get rocked and your head spins uh, and someone connects to the tip of the chin, the headgear only adds to the weight of the whiplash that causes a KO. So um, it really depends on what kind of training your gym, do gym does and what you're comfortable with. Ed Ruth, recently Penn State standout wrestler Ed Ruth has expressed interest in competing in MMA. Can you talk about the accomplishments as a wrestler? Uh, I would I would refer you to Coach Mike Junior uh, or uh, Coach Reardon. Uh, M Junior is on Twitter. Uh, Mike Reardon over Bloody Elbow. Um, Ed Ruth, one of the greatest top ten wrestlers in college of all time, multiple national champion. I think he only had three losses in all of college. Uh, a bit of a a bit of a screw up on the private side of things. Uh, had some issues with the law and some drinking, but in terms of athleticism and talent, I mean, he is a, you know, incredible, known for the cradle, uh, was able to pin guys, a lot of guys by setting up different cradles, um, quick on his feet, wrestling came natural to him, explosive off the block. I mean, he's, he's a force to be reckoned with if he can get good training. Um, Yeah, someone that answered a question for me better than I could. You see, do you believe we'll see Paul Harris back in the UFC in 2015? I don't. Um, will Dana step down as president of the UFC? I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, let me read you something because it's a lawsuit, because some of these questions don't. Uh, reflect it. But there's all kinds of other issues here that you need to. Uh, attention to, but. Um, it's worth sort of. God, I'm just sort of rambling here. Um, there's lots of different issues about this legal case you want to pay attention to. I want to mention something because I, I don't see that many take down or, uh, questions about it. Um, one thing I want to read to you quickly, this is from the Sports Illustrated article. What is the fighter's antitrust argument? And this is, I'm just going to read here real quickly. Um, pointing out that arguably unfair contractual provisions and seemingly low wages is not enough to prove the UFC has broken the law. Employees in the United States do not enjoy the inherent right to fair wages. Recognizing this, Lee and his co-plaintiffs charge the UFC has violated Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. 
In general, Section 2 bars illegal monopolies. A company being dominant in an industry does not automatically prove the company is an illegal monopoly. The company must have engaged in anti-competitive practices over a particular industry in a, in a particular market. According to Lee, the UFC has used a combination of oppressive contracts and deceitful tactics to remove rivals and would-be rivals in the market for, quote, live elite professional MMA fighter services. The absence of serious competition for UFC has allegedly given it monopsony power. I've already explained what that is. In addition to the one-sided contract provisions discussed above, the UFC also allegedly obliterates competition. According to Lee, the UFC has engineered a series of acquisitions designed to remove competing rivals and would-be rivals and thereby championship titles from the marketplace. Those acquisitions include acquiring the contracts of elite professional MMA fighters. Moreover, according to Lee, the UFC ensures it is the only MMA league in town by requiring, quote, major physical venues for MMA bouts to supply their services to the UFC exclusively. All right. So that's sort of what they're claiming from the anti-competitive space in addition to the unfair contractual demands, which they say, you know, suppress wages, reduce opportunity, and also contribute to a reduced uh, competitive environment, right? Because the contracts affect the fighter personally, my, you know, my likeness rights, but then it also has a greater scope, has more global scope because they can't use my likeness, a new organization can't use my likeness to sell merchandise or video games because the UFC still retains it. And also it makes difficulty, uh, uh, um, other provisions of the contract make acquiring the fighter services even more difficult. Are these things fair? And, and Sue asks, are these things legal? Real quickly, likely UFC defenses. The UFC will offer a number of defenses to debunk the, the plaintiff's legal theory. Number one, the UFC will stress the fighters voluntarily sign contracts to fight in the UFC. We've already talked about that, but they may win. While the UFC seems to receive a great deal from the fighters' labor, fighters are compensated in some cases quite well, and they also receive media exposure and endorsement opportunities they might not otherwise obtain. Number two, the UFC will portray its rules and business practices as reflecting superior business acumen, keen foresight, and honed skills. The very virtues promoted by capitalism. It is not illegal to thrive in the business world. And remember, what antitrust laws seek to do is preserve competition, not preserve competitors. But if one of the competitors is doing quite well and thriving in this and what they still believe is a reasonably fair competitive environment, they will let that go. They don't want to harm um, what they might see as an already robust competitive marketplace. Third, expect the UFC to reference how the Federal Trade Commission investigated it for antitrust violations from 2011 to 2012, but declined to pursue the matter. The FTC stated that the UFC's acquisition of Strike Force, World Fighting Alliance, and other MMA leagues, but found no unlawful conduct. Lastly, by the way, I'm looking into I'm looking into cases where FTC investigated, nothing happened. Those uh, people who were investigated were later sued and then lost in court. I'll let you know what I find. Lastly, watch for the UFC to contend that a judge forcing changes to its business model would harm the very industry at the heart of Lee's lawsuit. Another thing to keep in mind. Elite professional MMA fighting. The UFC would likely submit data and expert testimony that links the extraordinary growth and popularity of MMA in the U.S. to the success of the UFC. Under this theory, preventing the UFC from effectively competing would endanger that popularity and potentially lead to lower salaries for UFC fighters. If they are, if the uh, UFC might well effectively argue, if you break us up into something that they propose, you have thrown the baby out with the bathwater that you have broken down what was a much better thing to begin with in the service of some sort of ideal that makes the whole less space, less profitable, less competitive, and less ideal. Um, that to me is a pretty compelling argument, actually. 
uh, I, I think, I think the, again, I'll say it again. If you're asking me my personal view, non-legal, non-expert, uh, but consulting and reading about literature that, that speaks to this and, and folks who have some um, uh, experience in it, some of the provisions about the UFC fighter contracts might get it, might have some more traction, which might lead to a settlement that avoids all this together. Just want to get that out there. All right, let's go back to the questions. True or false? UFC 182 will do less pay-per-view buys than UFC 168 wide member to Silva 2, which was 1.02 million, allegedly. It will do less. Um, Luke would slightly favor Overeem over JDS if they fight in the spring. False. UFC should strip Kane if he doesn't defend his title by July of 2015. False. I'd rather shave my beard than let Dana White program my, pod, my iPod playlist. Probably. And my prime could deadlift over 350, yes. Um, keep going. Fighters calling out CM Punk. Luke, do you find it completely annoying that established fighters are calling out CM Punk? Uh, annoying, yes. Surprising, no. Uh, I suspect they believe by competing against them, they have uh, a ton of visibility to gain, potentially for the time being, if they can get them in before the Reebok deal starts, extra sponsors. Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why you'd want to call them out. But I can also see from a sporting standpoint why you'd find the idea repulsive. Certainly, it interests me not at all. Um, what's next for Nate Diaz? It is impossible to say what is next for Nate Diaz. How could anybody know? He is in a, in a mindset where he isn't even making appropriate decisions about his career one way or the other um, because he is so filled with frustration and uh, seemingly resentment and whatever else. And again, it's not a function of whether you agree with that. It's a function of what do you do with that? Two very different questions and two very different ways of approaching this person. Do you cut him? Do you try to find him an opponent? Does giving him an opponent he can beat even matter at this point? Is he costly to you if you do that? Uh, is that a waste of your time? Is it a waste of his time? Is there still something to be gained? These are very, very, very difficult questions. And I don't know if there's any real obvious, clear answers short from letting him go, but we know what that could potentially do. Which, again, by the way, sort of speaks to the UFC's argument that if you cut Nate Diaz and both were snatches him and then they use him on Spike, that this isn't the most anti-competitive space in the world. They just are really successful in that regard. I know that might shock some of you that I actually think that the UFC is not a monopoly, but um, also one point to keep in mind about what is and isn't a monopoly, whether one is an illegal or not illegal monopoly, some monopolies are very legal. Um, there's not a checklist of say 20 things or a hundred things that a business has to meet. You know, like, oh, well, you, 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 well, you got 89 of these, not all 100, you're not a monopoly. Monopoly actually works a bit on a sliding scale. It's not one thing or the other. It's a series of things put together that um, create a, a general picture, create a general outcome, a general phenomenon in the marketplace. So everyone was like, well, it doesn't do this, so therefore it's not. That's not how it works. You don't have to meet every single criteria. It has to be a certain set of practices in a certain marketplace that had defined certain outcomes. Um, and they're going to look very different time to time. Gilbert's losing pay equals Anthony Pettis' show plus win pay. Gilbert lost, Gilbert lost and made just as much money as the reigning champ of his division. Do you think the UFC will give him a real tough opponent coming off that loss? The UFC was probably not too happy when they had to give him the Gilbert's demands and they want to gain more leverage so they can give Melendez a pay cut. Do you see this happening? Do you think the UFC thinks this way? Uh, here's the salary for reference. Anthony Pettis, 200000 includes a 100000 win bonus. 
uh, Gil Melendez, 200,000 straight up. Now, first of all, I'm assuming that the Reebok sponsorship they gave him something because he was wearing it before the deal is even in place. Um, Wheaties probably paid him a fairly significant amount. He was just in the cover of him. So the take-home pay, I don't, I don't know how much it, uh, in the end he got. I don't know what kind of pay-per-view points he got, although I bet Melendez gets a fair amount. Um, but, um, but yeah, this is why you want to – I mean, how many different ways? Gilbert Melendez is able to match a guy who choked him out in the second round after losing – in terms of disclosed pay and probably even non-disclosed pay, absent sponsors. So, in other words, pay-per-view money. Um, or at least getting pretty close. And uh, and got mollywopped by the guy because he was even a restricted free agent basis. He was able to get another contract. This is what I'm saying to you. We have clear evidence that with a few different tweaks to the way the system works, not an upheaval, not a change, not a, not a smackdown, not a demolition, not breaking up. Uh, you know, Bell in the 1980s. But with some tweaks to the system, you can clearly see fighters are automatically getting more money. Gilbert Melendez is a different position. A ranked fighter has a certain value. But this is not one of these guys who has a demonstrative ability to draw ratings or pay-per-view buys. And he was able to get a nice, nice pay increase. Uh, that's, that's more than what he was making in Strikeforce. And, um, and he didn't even win a fight. That's pretty nice. Great, Cejudo, I was impressed by him both inside and outside the octagon. Would you give your assessment based on his performance and what the future holds for him? I would say that I was equally impressed. Uh, it looked small for the weight class. You recall he was the bantamweight and wanted to go back to a flyweight. We'll see if UFC allows it after botching it the first time. thought his hands looked good. He had good combinations. Still limited, not a huge arsenal, but enough to give Dustin Kimura more than he could handle. Uh, the rest of the takedowns weren't great, but they were... They were not. They were few and far between. They were launched later in the rounds, and uh, they weren't really set up all that well. Point being is, for a guy who's still getting his feet under him and, and is technically developing, um, very forgivable offenses. Is that how I would put that? Cardio looked good for three rounds. Again, he wasn't cutting that much. He was only going to advance some weight, but nevertheless, uh, an important thing to keep in mind. He wrestled at 121, I believe, pounds in the Olympics. So 125 would be a closer cut for him. 135 probably had some energy to give. Um, look, the kid speaks fluent Spanish. Uh, he has been around cameras since he was a teenager, probably before that. He knows how to do everything. I just need to make sure that he can consistently make weight, prepare like he's supposed to, and consistently get better. Because as good as he was, you're not going to beat anybody really good with the skills he had on display there. The question is, can he get better? And if he gets better, we'll then look out. Who do you believe is the best fighter outside the UFC? Probably Ben Askren. How do you think uh, Joanna Yajacek, I can never pronounce her last name, will do against Carla Esparza? I think she will get wrestled to the ground. I think she will lose. Uh, she will either lose in the clinch, she'll just lose because Sparza is not the not the kind of striker that Joanna is, but she can get in and out really nicely. Her take her blast doubles are sensational. Carl's gonna hold that title for a little while. Conor McGregor going into 2015, I think one clear contender to become a household name, superstar status, or close to will be Conor McGregor. Uh, blah 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 blah. Who do you think has the potential to become something similar apart from Conor? Uh, happy holidays, sinceramente. Fan from Argentina who lives in Spain. 
Do they make fun of your Catalan accent there? Um, Henry, it's about it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of someone else who's like gonna burst through. Uh, there's no one that really stands out to me. Did Kung Lee join the class action lawsuit before or after the failed drug test? He was asked about this. He said it had nothing to do with it. It's not. I know that this lawsuit, from what I've been told, has been in the works for a long time. Uh, how long in terms of Lee's involvement, I don't know. Uh, I've also been told that Newton was going to be part of this and that they thought it would be a bigger deal to have Kung on it because Kung is an active UFC fighter, so they removed Newton, but that Newton was really the architect of this. I'm trying to find out more information about that. Um, so you know, it, was, like, it makes a much more sense of a guy who is an active UFC fighter on the on the lawsuit than it would for a guy who's long since retired and competed under a different era and uh, all those different sorts of things. So, um, you know, how related to it is I don't know. But let's let's address a, an issue here because I know what you're probably getting at. I think a lot of fans are getting at it, and I see this all the time. Again, I'll never understand why fans have this like deep seated anti-fighter attitude, but many do, uh, especially if you've been cut from the UFC, man. Once the UFC cuts you, you are you are chum to a lot of fans. Anyway, um, there is an argument being, and I some, somebody emailed me about it, and they were saying, these guys are just bitter. They're just bitter. That's why they're doing this, because they want money, and they're bitter. To which I would say, so what? What does it what does it matter if they're bitter? That has nothing that might be true. You might be right. Maybe they want money and maybe they are bitter. What do their emotions have to do with this? You're trying to take what you view as something um, superfluous, something unfounded, something emotional, and you're trying to use that and then paste it on top of what is an entirely separate, vetted, you know, and that doesn't mean they're going to be win the case, but, you know, fairly substantial antitrust lawyers have looked over this legal case. So your argument, well, they're just bitter. They might be. What does that have to do with their legal case? Your, your repudiation of them because you don't like John Fitch because he was boring and Nate Quarry ret retired in 2010. And Kung Lee, who is probably using HGH. Man. What do those things have to do with that legal case? Nothing. Nothing. They have nothing to do with it. If you're going to argue the legal case, start the argument where it starts. What is in the plaintiff's uh, complaint? And let's see what the UFC responds with. And let's see where it goes. Do not start the argument with utterly irrelevant nonsense because you don't like fighters you perceived to be washed up. Start the argument where it starts. It starts at the complaint. That's where it starts. Particularly if other guys join. Sean Shirk, who wore UFC gold, seemed to have, at least via social media, all kinds of interest. What are you going to say about old Sean? He had some issues with uh, PEDs, I suppose, but maintains that he never did them. Even Kevin Ioli says that he, who is, a, who is very serious about PED use among combat athletes, he believes that Sean probably didn't use. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I recall reading a comment like that. Or not a comment, I'm sorry, a, 
a uh, article he wrote about Sean because Sean uh, he was doing an interview with him. Kevin Ioli was, and Sean didn't want to walk through the casino floor because people smoked there. It had to be sort of like guided around to get to his room. So we have to deal with that again, and, and that sort of stuck with Kevin because he said this is the guy who took his health so seriously, you know. And be that I'm not here to, to, you know, rehash that argument. I'm only pointing out to you is, if you have hostility to the fighters, uh, that's fine. It's a free country. You're allowed to do that. And if you think that this is a money grab, and ultimately will be ultimately will be thrown out of court, what are you worried about? If you are convinced that this is a uh, silly act by desperate fighters who don't have a case. The first thing you should do is kick your feet up and wait for them to fail. That's what you believe because you're pasting your emotional dislike for them on top of their legal case. You do that at your own peril. It has nothing to do with the case. The case is itself and the case is worked out by dudes who make a lot of money doing this, who went to literally <laughs> Harvard Law School among any other credential places who have argued antitrust for decades. Doesn't mean they're gonna win, doesn't make them right, but it certainly gives them enough, should give them enough benefit of the doubt that you separate whatever animosity you have for them than what the legal case actually states. And if they fall flat on their face, you can cheer. Free country. But just make sure you're doing that. Whatever your hostility towards them is completely irrelevant to what is happening uh, with that lawsuit being filed in Sacramento. Why doesn't UFC use a bell to end rounds? I sometimes hear the foghorn lose air and sound weak. I don't know, Bellator does. Um, I know a lot of states do use the air horn. I think DC uses the air horn. Um, I don't know if it's up to the promotion or not, but I know that, uh, I know that Bellator uses a the bell and I would like to see other organizations do it as well. I think it would help help a lot. The air horn just feels like something that, you know, the air horn is like one step removed from the Vuvuzela. <laughs> it sucks. Like let's get something a little more you know forceful, right? Let's go to Twitter if we can because I've ignored it this whole time. Um with Diaz wanting more money and hating CM Punk, why not set up a welterweight battle? I don't even know how to answer that. Guys, why don't we put up someone whose athletic credentials are on and off training, on and off classes in jiu-jitsu, and oh, maybe one time he got a pair of uh, athletic shorts at the Sports Authority. Let's put him up against one of the best welterweights in the world. I'm sure that this will result in no undue and unnecessary harm to the gentleman. Hey, I'm sure any athletic commission in the country would legalize and sanction such a thing. Do you think Viacom Bellator are behind this lawsuit? No, you would find that out quickly. Do you think Nate and Lee and John are getting paid for this? Uh, I think they get paid once there's damages. Folks are asking how this is working. I believe it's, I don't, I don't know I need to verify this, but my understanding is that um, that the case that that whatever money they're able to generate as a result of a settlement or a judgment is what the law firm will take home. 
that John Fitch and Kung Lee and A. Corey aren't funding this. I don't know where they get the money to fund it to begin with, especially when we're talking you know millions of dollars. That's what I'm talking about here. This is this is something that a team of relevant experts doesn't mean they're going to win and doesn't make them right, but a team of relevant experts in the field projected studies with information. What is there to be gained, and do we have a reasonable path to get it? And they concluded enough that there was, which is why they filed suit on Tuesday. Did Claudia Gadelia get away with her after the bell strike because she's a female? No. Is Cy Cyborg Rousey the closest thing MMA will ever have to Mayweather Pacquiao? No. Why are illegal moves, groin strikes, eye pokes tolerated? Because it's hard to prove intention and the consequences of acting on them have profound impact. Do you think Pacquiao has any chance of beating Mayweather? Slight. Why are 10-8 rounds so hard to get? Because judges don't like using them, because it creates uh, uh, bizarre scorecards in their, in their mind. Um, a lot of uh, commissions don't like using them for the very same reason. They like sort of an order there, if, if at all you can provide it. Um, a lot of them don't understand what a 10-8 would be versus a 10-9. A lot of problems there, because the 10-8 in boxing is relatively clear. Oh, did you take a knee from a liver shot? Boom, 10-8. Not so easy in, in mixed martial arts. What's your opinion on the lawsuit? Saying it's for the fighters, but only Kong, Nate, and Fitch would get money. No. If Kong, Nate, and Fitch got their way, they would become representative of a larger whole, and that anyone who fit a certain description, I think I think anyone who fought for the UFC in certain places, uh, in certain geographic locations from 2010, so in the United States and Canada, uh, and so anyone who has competed in nothing but foreign soil since then would not be entitled to any kind of recompense, but everyone else would. Bigger fight in terms of pre-fight anticipation, Wyman versus Anderson 2, or Jones versus Cormier. Uh, Jones Cormier for me, anyway. How's a union get started? Uh, I don't have enough time to even go into it. Do you think there's no point to World Series of Fighting's existence at this point? I wouldn't say there's no point. I think that's a bit harsh, but I certainly question the value add. Do you think that Miles Jury has the skill set to beat Cowboy given the proper game plan provided by Eric Del Fiero? I think he has the. Um, yeah, he can box well from the outside. He starts stronger. I can see him taking a lead. Uh, and he has underrated back takes, I actually kind of feel like. Although I would still sort of give the better guard to Don Cerrone. you think of Nate Diaz posting a photo of him smoking a joint after the UFC? Would beer be better? Um, what your position is. It's certainly not tolerated in terms of what fighters are allowed to imbibe, but if you're asking from a health standpoint what's better, the, the weed is better. Do you feel like Carla winning versus Rose was bad for the women's strawweight division? No, just fine. Who do you think will jump on board the lawsuit? Rampage, Tito, Ken, Diaz, any others? I don't know. But I wouldn't suspect that the ultra-rich would get on this. It actually hurts the case. If you've got a guy who made, in Kate Rampage's case, to say he made $15 million. Now, it's a complicated argument a little bit because 
again, we don't want to look at numbers like, hey, uh, I wish you remember that I'll go back to him, the whining and crying guy from the Chuck Liddell Q&A. Chuck, I don't understand all these fighters whining and crying about all their money. 15 million is a lot of money by just about any standard. But let's say you were worth 300 million and you made just 15. You probably have some issues. I'm not saying Rampage is anywhere close to that, but you get the idea. The issue is not what you made. The issue is what you're worth. And did you make what you were worth? Uh, that, to me, is a, is a separate argument. So even the, even with that, though, just guys who got paid money like that, guys who are at the upper end of the system. Like, listen, if you're at the upper end of the of the UFC pay structure, it's pretty great for you. You know what I mean? Like you, you, if you're Ronda Rousey or John Jones or you're Anthony Pettis or, um, um, you know, Cain Velasquez, these are people who, who, who do really well. There's very little to say in the way of, crying for their situation and they might be maximizing their wealth much closer than anybody else is and maybe they outright maximize it who knows you know um this is not what we're talking about here but uh um i don't think those kinds of figures might join somebody like sean shirk who actually wore ufc gold and now is like you know doing carpentry which is what he was doing beforehand um that didn't retire with a lot of money i think that might be something you see as a much more it's going to be guys who felt like they didn't get what they were owed, you know, and that that's going to be a lot of different kinds of um, fighters, but you're not going to see a whole lot of rich fighters sign on to that because they probably don't feel like they need to. Hey, I've got what was coming to me, you know, going back to the questions here. Assuming Machida wins this Saturday, how many more wins would he need to get another title shot in that division? Two or three. Uh, Luke, in regards to Mike Hogan personally, I thought he was a bad manager after the Nate Diaz situation and then thought he was a terrible person after the use of the N-word in regards to Jose Aldo. And now after his comments in regards to Ronda Marcos, it makes me feel less of him. Before I condemn the man, there are usually two sides of the story. His, I don't know what he's doing with those racist remarks. Uh, I, I've met Mike in person. Let me tell you something about Mike Hogan. Could not be a nicer guy in person. Pleasant to, to talk to, has a lot to say. Um, um, he's like, you meet him. He's a great guy. And then he gets on Twitter and you're like, dude, what are you doing? You know, there's no excuse for it. I'll never defend it. I just don't, I can't compute the two different ones. You know, I just don't, I just don't get it. There's someone asking if Asian fighters don't do as well because of they have low testosterone levels. Joe Rogan recently mentioned on this podcast that his days as an MMA commentator could be numbered because he can't reconcile his love of the sport with his concern about fighter head trauma. Do you as a journalist and MMA fan ever feel any guilt for supporting a sport that could potentially cause someone to be severely disabled or even lose their life? Sure. All the time. JDS is one of those situations. I don't know that I can watch any more of his fights, man. I don't know that I can. I'm not saying I can't, but... I don't feel good about it. Even Joe Riggs, too, you know. Um, I mean, look, this is regulated for a reason. We do as many health screenings as we can at the elite level anyway. We do blood screenings. We do head scan screenings. We we have a system of weeding out you know, the ones who train and the ones who excel. There's all kinds of natural barriers in place that the ones who leap those are you know, uh, in a position that while this is an inherently dangerous activity, they sh they are shielded from some of the more adverse effects that would happen where you or me. Um, there's also sort of an open question about if you don't regulate this, what happens to it? 
does it go away or does it become even more inherently dangerous? There's another question about sort of, you know, people owning their own lives and owning their own ability to do what they want. I think the state has recognized at some point that argument falls apart when you become um, unable to, as they deem it, when, you're, when you are tasked with managing your own health and you seem incapable of doing it, the state will step in. Um, and I think that's the best possible outcome we can have. I wouldn't mind it if fighters retired earlier, to be honest. You know, I, this, when, when people always have these comebacks, like there's nothing to me less, not only less interesting. I don't get a lot out of comebacks. I don't. Everyone, you know, they do big money, and I feel like everyone talks about, like, oh, my, my God, GSP is going to come back. Anderson's going to come back. I'm not saying I won't watch it. I'm not saying I won't enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not a fool. You know, I know how great these guys are. Uh, I have no desire to see comebacks, almost never. Because to me, it's like it's never going to match. The, we've talked about it on this chat. When is the best time to catch a guy? For me, two different times. One, on their way up as they're just like breaking every expectation you have about them. And two, when they're at their peak. And so, you know, a dominant title reign. After that, it just doesn't become very enjoyable for me. Once you've either leveled off and then declined, it's not that I, I think you're disposable trash. I, I think your career at that point was is brilliant. If someone wants you to make a comeback, you know your services are in high demand, and your services are in high demand because of the, the incredible contributions you have made to the sport. And no one should ever take that away from a guy. But if you're asking me personally, I think comebacks are gross. I think they're gross. I'm not telling you you have to feel that way. I'm not telling anyone they can't book rematches and and, and comebacks. And then I'm not telling these guys like George St. Pierre. I have no business telling him what to do with his career. And I'm not telling Anderson Silva what to do with his career. I get almost nothing out of them. I get almost nothing out of them. You are watching a cheap facsimile of what it used to be, and you're watching it in an incredibly dangerous sport. Where like at the time, GSP, you know, when he was only, when he'd only taken 300 head headshots in his career, he was still much better. He was now 800 total in his career, 800 headshots. So he's less capable offensively, less capable defensively, and you're asking him to produce. It, to me, it, uh, it's ghoulish. It's ghoulish. I don't like comebacks. I don't like them. I know everyone else does, uh, and it's fine. I, I am alone on this one. It's okay. I'll be alone on this one, but I just don't need to see him. I have no interest in them. Once they're once, like for me, GSP retiring after the Hendricks fight was perfect. Or as perfect as it was gonna get anyway. Because I thought he lost that fight, but he didn't, you know, so he kept his title, whatever. Dude, you got out of the game okay, man. Like they 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 took out Anderson Silva on his last fight on a stretcher. He got stretchered out. It only it only goes downhill from here, man. It only goes downhill from here. Maybe he'll beat Nick Diaz, and that's fine. But uh, I don't know. I just don't need to see him. Look a little off topic, but I was wondering how come you left Bloody Elbow because they had plenty of talent, and we had other demands to create other verticals. So I was tasked with doing that. Pretty simple. If Boral misses weight on Friday but beats Gagnon impressively, do you think he would be forced to move up? Probably. Independent contractor versus employment. 
was brought up again. I don't know how this suit is going to handle that. I'm going to actually try to inquire with the lawyers to see if they have any view about it. Who do you like in the Jones-DC fight? I really like DC. I believe he'll win a dominant decision. What do you think? I actually think that Jones is going to win. I'll save the analysis for when we get to fight time. See that? You're asking me like what I like in fight sports? That's what I like. I like two guys. Now, Cormier is a little bit older, but he's still uh, capable of competing against a prime John Jones, right? I've talked about on this show a million times. That That's MMA at its, at its finest. At its finest. You know. Everyone's like, why does this ad have nothing but their animosity and their rivalry on outside the cage? Because when the credentials are that great, do you need to show their highlights? You can just let that speak for itself. Sell the rest of it to get everyone else who might get involved. Sell the drama, fine, because everyone else who cares about sporting is already going to be there. If the lawsuit is successful, what could it mean for the UFC? Um, it depends on what kind of judgment they reach. You know, if it goes all the way to, a, I, which I don't suspect it will, but if it goes all the way to a jury trial, um, you know, it could. It, the The Sports Illustrated article says it could unravel. They could they could adjust fighter contracts so that they lose all exclusivity. I don't think this is likely, but they lose all exclusivity, which will allow fighters to jump around promotion to promotion. Um, it would result in a pretty damaging um, blow to UFC brand as a brand leader and their ability to, to retain talent. Um, any number of things could happen. I, again, I, I actually I don't I think it'd be terrible for everybody if that happened. But uh, one thing I want to read you here real quickly from this is the Paul Giff article that I recommended. Real quickly, not too long ago, the World Poker Tour was sued by its players for antitrust violations and the acquisition of player likeness rights at a monetary price of zero to run in perpetuity throughout the universe. The players settled and didn't receive any monetary compensation, but at least got new releases for their likeness rights. So you see that there's something to look here at um, about what various levels of success might look like. And also keep in mind this lawsuit might be the first of many. This is a question I cannot answer right now because I'm still researching it, but why do sports like golf and tennis work so well with no players union? Um, it's an important question, but one I'm not really, I'm working on my answer. I don't have a good one for you yet. Look, what do you do with junior since We were talked about this. Winner of Cowboy Jury faces Habib for the number one contender spot. Love it. I think it's a great idea. I don't think Habib should fight for a title coming back, even if I think that you know, everyone knows he beat Rafael dos Anjos handily. Time off, give him a give him a fight that's tough and it's really really difficult, but not the fight. Why not post judges' scores after each round? A lot of reasons, um, not least of which is that commissions like this to shield their judges from opprobrium and might make judges nervous. They want to, they want judges to operate comfortably and in a space without a whole lot of scrutiny for some good reasons. Now, I'm, I believe they take that lack of scrutiny too far, but they want their judges to be comfortable with their decision to, to be able to, to trust their own judgment and not make decisions under duress, which I think some people feel if they were forced to reveal them after each round, um, it would come to that. Uh, someone has an awards post. I'll go back and answer this with text. 
Hector Lombard with an impressive win at UFC 182. Does he sit and wait for a title shot in 2015? I doubt it. An association or a lawsuit? Hello, hello, Luke. In your opinion, would it be better for fighters to have a successful lawsuit or the fighters forming a union? I think a union, if they could get one, would be massively much more advantageous. A real union or, or an association, depending on how you want to, um, depending on which one you can get. A real one with real teeth would be much more beneficial. I think, I think we could do it because lawsuits are ugly and they're long and they're painful and they're expensive. Like this is not the optimal way of doing things, but I guess the fighters feel like this might be their only recourse. At least these fighters feel that way. We see Mayweather Pacquiao in 2015. I don't believe it, but strange things have happened. Rashad moving down in weight class. I think we talked about this last week. He could move down to 185. I think he might, given Anthony Johnson. If Anthony Johnson beats Gustafson, he might. Um, he's, you know, I think in the twilight of his career, he's got one foot in commentating and, and uh, not commentating, but analysis, TV anyway. And uh, he's pretty good at it. I like Rashad. He's like a good guy. Been around for a long time. I would suspect that um, he would go down to 185, and I think he'd have a lot of success there forever little the run was. After seeing this most recent version of JDS, do you think a fight with him versus Jones would end? I would. You're going to kill me for saying this. I would favor John Jones. I know that drives some of the haters nuts, but it's true. I would. Jones beats DC and Rumble beats the guts. How do you see Jones Rumble going down? Let's see how Jones beats DC, first of all. The big issue for me has been the wrestling. I think it's declined in Jones. I don't know if it's been by accident or not. Uh, I don't know if it's been the toe or not. But that's to me something you have to keep in mind. But if he's able to bring it back against Daniel Cormier and use it to strong effect, you got something going there. What do you think of the Davis Bader fight? I like Bader. I don't see many others picking him. I like Davis. I think Davis manages distance better. I think he takes fewer risks. I think he manages the clock better. And I think that for those reasons, I would favor Davis. Woodley Gastelum, who you got? Uh, tough one. Tough one. Um, Uh, I don't know. Good question here. Call me stupid, but I have a question or two about the lawsuit. What is the end game? What exactly are the plaintiffs after? Put into layman's terms, please, Luke. I go to Paul Gift. He's got exactly what you're looking for. Broad allegations. There are two elements to every antitrust case, liability and damage. For liability, the fighters claim the UFC has a, quote, overarching anti-competitive scheme to maintain and enhance its monopoly power in the market for the promotion of live professional mixed martial arts bouts and a monopsony power in the market for the elite professional MMA fighter services. Uh, monopoly power deals with the output market, so entertainment, ad space, content license sales, and monopsony deals with the input market, in this case, fighter services in the labor market. Um, notice the fighters aren't suing the UFC for having a monopoly. It's 100% legal to have a monopoly in the United States. The fighters are suing the UFC for anti-competitively maintaining and enhancing this power. The fighters allege that the UFC has engaged in an illegal scheme to eliminate competition from would-be rival promoters by systemically preventing them from getting access to resources critical to the successful MMA promotions, including by imposing extreme restrictions on UFC fighters' ability to fight for would-be rivals during and after their tenure with the UFC. This is the heart, as he says, of the case. 
The statement has the makings of an economic argument predicated on raising rivals' cost via long-term exclusive fighter contracts. Um, and that leads to damages. The UFC has used the ill-gotten monopoly and monopoly, this is their quote, and monopsony power it has obtained and maintained through the scheme alleged herein to suppress compensation for UFC fighters in the bout class artificially and to expropriate UFC fighters' identities and likenesses inappropriately. In other words, the claim is that the UFC is able to keep fighter compensation low and better extract image and likeness rights because they anti-competitively maintained and enhanced their monopoly power. If not for this conduct, fighter compensation would have been higher. How much higher over what relevant market and for how long determines monetary damages. Beyond that, though, we don't know in terms of the, these, this is the broad stroke that they're painting here. This is what they are alleging. Okay. But in terms of what they want as a specific blueprint, we want the UFC broken into pieces or we want contracts to look this way. We don't know that yet. This is why I'm saying this will be a long uh, energy and intellectual investment process. You have to keep doing this for a while to really understand what they're trying to do and what's possible. Let's see. UFC stole Rampage's sponsors. The case document against the UFC brings up the example of them blocking fighters' sponsors and negotiating themselves a deal instead. Round 5 and Reebok came to Rampage first. UFC blocked him from being sponsored by Reebok in the cage. Makes me think they also want to take the Nike deal off Jones, but Nike were too smart for them. What are your thoughts on these kinds of shady business practices put the organization before the athlete? Um, well, Nike did withdraw because they didn't see, I mean, you know, Jones's individual individual actions didn't help, but Nike did leave the space because there wasn't a lot of value for them because of the Reebok deal. Um, again, I, I don't personally have an issue with the UFC saying your sponsors can't conflict with ours, uh, provided there is some kind of recompense negotiated on the fighter's behalf. But simply telling them that I personally, again, whether that will hold up the court, I have no idea. But from a personal level, I, that that to me is where it gets tripped up. Would we see more output if there was longer rest periods depending on weight classes? No. Is the UFC, in your opinion, a monopoly? Uh, I don't think so. No. It's a good question. Is Cormier really that serious of a threat? I've been looking over Cormier's resume, and I'm starting to wonder if we're not giving him too much credit. If we look at his big wins, he finished Bigfoot and Barnett. Well, he didn't finish Barnett, but he beat him. Bigfoot hasn't beaten anyone relevant in the UFC, and his one big win over Fedor was after he'd been beaten and possibly just hit that over the hill mark. Barnett, on the other hand, is an excellent fighter, but he has also not beaten anyone relevant in the UFC. Now, I certainly credit Cormier with the way he's dispatched his opponents. He's looked elite doing so, but if we are going to review Jones, who Jones has fought, as comparable, uh, it obviously favors Jones. Rashad Evans has a similar wrestle boxing style, and we saw how that went. I'll grant you Cormier's fight IQ, wrestling base, and striking are on another level, but generally styles remain similar. A uh, couple things here. One, I think you are doing a slight bit of a disservice to Cormier. I mean, he's fought everyone they've asked him to fight, and so, um, and he's beaten them, everyone they've asked him to fight. I think there's something to be said for that. I do think also that there's a tendency among MMA fans to review resumes long after a fighter's 
you know, uh, win. And then to say, well, look at, you know, oh, well, he beat Shogun. Yeah, but look at Shogun. Your, your image of Shogun is the guy who lost to Dan Henderson or more recently to Oban St. Prue. You have this diminished view of them. It's really hard to understand the value of a win in the context in which it was achieved. It's very, very hard to go down a resume and do that. I mean, the standing guillotine on, on uh, Leona Machida and then just dropping him to the mat, that is all-time baller status win. You know, but I wonder if people are like, well, he's fighting, you know, C.B. Dalloway in Brazil, how great can this really be? I'm not saying Machida has necessarily, you know, fallen to that level, but you get the idea. There's there's a lot of resume reviewing that leads people to be dismissive over the value of a win. You can't really do that. You have to understand each win for the time period. What was at stake? Who was this guy at the time at which he fought him? And then go back and sort of say, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I know there's a lot of resume review that, that happens that way in mixed martial arts. But to your point, I do think, though, that um, Cormier's got a lot of ability to give Jones problems, but I, and the wrestling is the X factor for, for Jones, not for DC. But if Jones can keep the fight at distance, I'm not sure that Cormier's speed will be that problematic for him in the end. Uh, I guess we need to get going here because I've gone over 231. I want to make one final comment, um, if I may, about this, and then we'll, we'll call it a day here for this chat. But it's, uh, about this lawsuit and the climate it's created. You know, I don't know how you guys feel. I could be totally wrong. And I'm not saying that this, you know, people lashing out is always a good thing. It's not. In fact, some some dissent is bad. But uh, or just misplaced and of you know dubious value. But I I I don't wish the lawsuit upon anyone. I don't wish I, I just wish this whole thing could go away, to be perfectly honest. I wish I wish the science could just communicate together work out a deal and be done with it. And maybe they will with the settlement, you know, that, that to me, I, I'd rather just go to settlement to be perfectly honest. Settlement to me seems like a much better option for everybody, including the community itself and the sport itself. Um, you know, UFC had a tough year in 2014 and they're trying to rebound in 2015. And in many ways, I think we all hope that they do. Um, but I feel a little bit of a, sh not a shift exactly, but I feel a little bit the winds of um, people being more vocal about what they want in the sport. There's still a lot of hush-hush talk, you know. Oh, well, I heard this, and I don't want to say that because that might have that consequence. And um, If this lawsuit achieves the ability for us to get every issue on the table and understand it from a sort of democratized standpoint, and then we can have a much more honest conversation in the community, then it will be of benefit to everybody. If that doesn't happen, then, you know, that's a shame. But... I'm not saying the lawsuit is good or it's bad. I, I do think that the plaintiffs have some merit to the argument. I think they don't have in others. But the more fighters articulate grievances, not lash out necessarily, but articulate grievances, the more UFC makes their case for why they believe they are as good as they are and deserve to have this case or not. The more information we have, if there is uh, a deposition, if there is a discovery, these are things that benefit us all. More information is better. Uh, and I want everyone to keep that in mind. So whatever your hostilities to Fitch and everyone else, if we can get more information to understand what fighters are actually making, and maybe the UFC has been telling the truth this whole time, and all these fighter complaints are BS, then you will have been proven right. Or if they are paying only 30%, they should be paying 50% of uh, you know, the revenue split. This lawsuit will help us figure that out. There is value here, as ugly as it may be. I hope it's settled. I hope it goes quickly. I know that in some ways it won't. But I just mean, I think the community is struggling to have honest conversations with itself. 
I think the community for a long time has struggled to articulate grievances and it's come to this and that's unfortunate, but maybe, just maybe, through a settlement or something else, we can get change that the fighters can live with and that can help the industry be in a more stable place because 2014 was rough and this lawsuit is not good. And I would, in terms of, you know, does it, does it strengthen the MMA industry? I mean, in the short run, I don't think anyone would say that. Maybe if you agree with the plaintiffs in the long run. I'm just pointing out we need more information. We need more honest conversation, and we need those things to happen. And if this is the way to get there, great. Um, I, I hope that if there's no other benefit to this lawsuit than, than that. But um, I just feel like it's missing. We never have honest conversations with each other. Fighters never really talk about how they really feel about one thing or the other. And, and the more we have an exchange of ideas from the UFC and then to the UFC, and then two World Series are fighting in front of them and two belts are in front of them, I think the better everyone off, everyone will be. All right. Follow me on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Um, I'll answer any questions I didn't get to with written text in the rest of this chat. And, guys, this is an ongoing issue. I will follow me on Twitter for all kinds of recommendations on reading to understand this better. Um, we'll get through it together, I promise. Until next time, stay frosty. Plenty of coverage for UFC this weekend on MMAfighting.com. See you next week.